Hello and welcome back to the Ulster Rugby Roundup. I'm Gareth Hanna without Richard Mulligan. I am having to do my own introduction this week. Joining me are Jonathan Bradley and John Dixon. Hello boys. Hi Gareth. Hey Gareth, how are you? All good, all good. John, you weren't volunteering to jump in with the intro there. Like, did you hear Richard's introduction last week? I did. What do you think? Polished? I'm saying, I'm saying nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't criticize. So do you want to have a go there? I would never criticize Richard Mulligan for anything. Except, except his uh, gilet wearing tendencies. Criticize that. It gives us something to laugh about. <laughs> the gilet season, this will be him now. He'll not see his sleeve again until November. <laughs> he won't. He won't. Else he won't. So, uh, more than that, we have plenty to discuss Ulster's win over Cardiff and a busy weekend. This weekend coming with two massive games in one day. Ulster playing Leinster and England taking on Ireland at Twickenham. So, uh, lots to get through and we have some of your listener questions to help us do that. So, we shall begin with Ulster's victory over Cardiff, 48-12. And, well, I was going to say, first of all, Robert Balakoon, but first of all, Johnny, I didn't realise that they weren't called Cardiff Blues anymore until the weekend when I had the text you going, why are they not called Cardiff Blues anymore? I was very uh, I was very upset about this. Yeah, so we had, a uh, well, me attempting to explain the complexities of Welsh regional rugby and their uh, various <laughs> identities and their various catchment areas to you over a WhatsApp message before going to the game. <laughs> it, was, it was all you needed really but uh, another brace for Robert Balakoon of course John and really there's not much more he, he could he could have done and he could be doing of late to um, make his claim for Ireland Yeah not only his uh, attacking his defensive um, reads were very good uh, uh, at the weekend so you know, Robert's done well and um, he's putting his hand up every time uh, the, the problem that, that that he has really is that the fact that uh, everybody at the minute in Ireland's playing well uh, in all the four provinces. And I guess, you know, you're nearly needing the guy who you're up against to, to slip up some way. But to be fair, he can't do any more than he's doing. He's, he's, he's been brilliant. Um, acceleration, power, everything he's got, it just leaves everybody in his wake. Um, and it was great also then, obviously, to see Aaron Sexton get his first try for Ulster in the other wing. Uh, when he came on and again another player with a great lot of speed uh, in his armoury so Robert's done well so fingers crossed he'll get noticed yeah fingers crossed Johnny at first like isn't it like um, somebody as fast as Robert Balakun going off for somebody faster like that's got to be some kind of rugby world record that we witnessed on uh, on Friday night the fact that the Ulster social media team have not had them racing John get on that I want to see that video I don't even know if that needs to be social media. Like, people would buy tickets for that. <laughs> yeah. John, get on that. I'll let you have that as your own idea. Mm-hmm. I'll think you're a genius. Remember they used to do, like, the end-of-season barbecue thing? Like, that would be a great, uh, a great event for that. <laughs> so, those tries, Johnny, I mean, they were very well worked. But the first one, like, I mean... It's pure luck, isn't it? That's what annoys me a wee bit about rugby. Like, they, they didn't plan for that, that bounce of the ball. Oh yes, whereas obviously football is uh, a game of chess where everything is completely <laughs> orchestrated. I actually think I may have been more fortunate than you're even thinking because I do genuinely, be- genuinely believe that that kick coming from the own half may have been a 50-22 attempt. But um, 
Yeah, bounced uh, bounced straight back into the bread basket, and from there, nobody was going to stop him. I actually thought the uh, the second try was a better example of his pace because certainly watching the second try, as soon as he got the ball in his hands, you were thinking try, but you were thinking try because all he had to do was pass the ball inside to Cooney. Yeah, and it was a a run in score, but he was so quick that one. He didn't need to pass the ball because he could just run straight past the covering defense. And two, he was actually too quick for the trail run. So it had made it a more difficult pass by the time he sort of set off. So he uh, just did it all himself. It reminded me actually quite a lot of his uh, second score against Connacht a few weeks back where he just got the ball, pinned his ears back and blew past a guy that looked like he should have had the line um, to make the tackle. So it was another one of those where even having watched him as many times as you have, you're still sort of taken aback by the just by the sheer speed that he gets up to. Yeah, like it take the light from your eyes. We'll discuss in a little while then as to just how close we think he and, and the rest of the guys that we're about to talk about are to Ireland selection for that big game at the weekend. Though while we're on that second try, John, Stuart Moore's role in that um, from a, a very unfamiliar position for him. Uh, he, he had a great role in that try and a, a fairly impressive game all round. Yeah, he did. Stuart, Stuart's come on very well indeed. You go back to the game against the Northampton Saints at uh, Franklin's Gardens. I, I thought he was fantastic in that match. He, he controlled everything he did. He made line breaks. He looked for support. He was just um, a very accomplished young player. The problem Stuart has obviously had is is his uh, injuries. And uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, he can stay injury-free and get more game time, whether it's in the centre or full-back, where he obviously now has put his hand up. Uh, That's all you can say about that. He he was superb uh, at the weekend. Um, And I think, obviously, his reading of the game, he's a very intelligent player, his reading of the game is top drawer, and he reminds me a bit like Paddy Wallace. The way Paddy was was never given the credit that was due to him for the way he read the game, and uh, and I think Stewart's quite like that. And I thought that that Stewart and James Hume had a very um, I know workable partnership in the middle of the field, and they seemed to to, to uh, create a lot off each other. And I think at fullback he brings that same bit of creativity to to the back three. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just gone back to Robert Balakun before. I, I, I wanted just to mention on that first try when that ball was kicked up in the air, and obviously the Cardiff defence let it bounce. If you watch Robert Balakun, he anticipated that ball bouncing to the left because he actually changed direction slightly before any of the Cardiff players re- reacted. So he had, had at least two yards on them. Mm. before he ran in to, to catch that ball, he actually anticipated it was going to go left and he went left with it. And, and that's why he was able to get there and beat them to it. So, you know, although you said it was luck, he actually maybe was, the luck was there in him reading it as the way he did. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was fantastic. And then just, it's just the way he, he ran that line then he arced himself out around the defensive line because he knew he had the confidence and that's the big difference in Robert at the moment. He has got the confidence back or into his game now that he probably would never have had three three years ago, maybe four years ago. I certainly remember him playing in a Towns Cup final for Enniskillen against Balnehinch. And um, I was asked recently for photographs of him playing for Enniskillen. And I said, yeah, yeah, you played against in that Towns Cup final. Went back into my archive, looked through it, and I have loads of pictures of Robert tackling players, but not Robert running with the ball. 
he, <laughs> he wasn't the threat that he was or is now because yeah. he has this confidence that he has the ability and the pace and, and just the skill set now to take anybody on. And that's what you need as a wing. That's interesting that he wasn't always. But then I suppose with her and Johnny, you've written the piece too, haven't you, about just how shy he was back then? And how did you yeah, like it was uh, in that piece, I used to quote from from Dan Sober that said that exact thing. Because I asked Dan what, you know, big, the big changes that he had seen in Rob from them both sort of coming into the Ulster setup at the same time and now, and that was the word that he used. It was uh, it was confidence that he's got more confidence now in his own ability at this level. And um, just, I suppose, like John says, confidence is in the, confidence in his ability that when he gets the ball, that he does have this uncoachable attribute in his speed that um, he can take advantage of. Because like we mentioned those tries, the Connacht and uh, the second one on... Um, on Friday night, there there is a huge amount of confidence required to back yourself to get through a gap that, like, I'm not kidding, like 99% of players in the league probably couldn't get through because yeah. how many how many rugby players have his level of top end speed? I mean, I know we joke about the fact that uh, he was replaced by somebody who's quicker, but like, we shouldn't overlook how rare it is. And then, so with John saying as well about uh, his tackling, like. He made a brilliant tackle in that game on Friday as well. Like his um, his defense, like I enjoy watching his defense. It's not as rare as the speed because we've just emphasized just how rare the speed is. But like personally at the ERC level, I think it is unusual for a defender to be such a good tackler as well. And like in that piece that I wrote, I was talking to uh, some of his coaches at Enniskillen and they were saying, you know, everyone always credits the, uh, the sevens experience for his ability to tackle. But Basically, from his first day playing adult rugby, if you like, at Enniskillen, they say that he, you know, he had this ability to read what attackers were going to do, and he even considerably slighter than he is now. Obviously, having gone through years of um, basically a professional gym program, that he still was forceful and still had that same force in the tackles as well. Well. We're a bit like that the, that ball when it was kicked out to the win, wing and that we're bouncing about all over the place here because back to Stuart Moore again. Um, when, John, can you give us maybe any sort of... Because when the team sheet came out, you know, it was probably a bit of a surprise to see him named a fullback. Can you give us any insight from behind the scenes as to how long this has maybe been in the pipeline for and how, how it sort of came about, how the discussions came about regarding it or, or what happened? No, I can't because oh. I was surprised to me as well. You know, I, I go to training every week and look, he may go, go to fullback, maybe go onto the wing. Ben Moxham is the same. You know, yeah. the boys are moved, the back three move about all the time. So there are loads of combinations there that they can use. It's not just, you know, to play, you have to be able to play wing and 15 nowadays. So you're a back three rather than just a fullback. But the move from the centre to fullback was yeah. quite unusual. But again, I, I put that down to the fact that Stuart obviously has that ability and the coaches honestly feel he has the intelligence and, and the ability to read the game at fullback because that's why Michael Laurie is so good. Because Michael Laurie can, can read the game so well and, and I think that's what Stuart has the ability to do as well. So that, they gave him the, that was giving him confidence to go into play fullback. You know, we all saw what he could do. So, Johnny, we'll just throw in our first listener question of the day here then. Stuart K. Martin says that McElroy, Addison, Lowry and Little have all played 15 this season. And if Stockdale had been 50, probably would have as well. 
So does that make Stuart Moore fifth choice at 15 now? Do you think we'll ever see him there again? And he says he would like to see more of him there. What, what do you think? Well, I think he said himself post-match that he thought he was seventh choice maybe going in. <laughs> so maybe even worse than that. Um, yeah, look, I think, uh, I believe anyway, that the plan was for Robbie Little to play um, fullback at the weekend before he got injured. But when we asked Dan Super about this after the game and he was talking about the need for all of these young players really to play more than one position. I suppose really, you know, Bigger mentioned um, Laurie there is a brilliant example. You know, he's come through as a 10 and now he's a test 15. You look at guys that Stuart Moore has spoken about as players he likes to watch. So he's spoken about looking at to Robbie Henshaw for um, little different bits that he can pick up. Now I know obviously Henshaw's most recent international experience in fullback didn't go particularly well, but um, he does have the ability to play there. He's talked about uh, looking at David Havili, who's played 10, 12, 15 for the All Blacks. Obviously, Demi McKenzie is another example of the All Blacks. You know, the idea of guys having one position, I suppose, really is quite limiting. So if it is something tangible that he can add to his resume, if you like, I think that would only be only be a positive. I mean, given the way the game went, he probably similar, I suppose, to the conversation that we had about Mike Laurie last week. Like he maybe didn't get tested in some of the areas of the game that you would want to see him tested in. Um playing a fullback, but you're only gonna get that by playing more often and playing against better opposition. So in terms of, you know, fielding high balls on a nasty weather day in terms of his kicking from hand and things like that that you'd want to see more of. You're only going to get that by uh, by giving him another run there. And I don't see any harm really to Ulster in him developing that ability. Although I do think that ultimately 13, sorry, I do ultimately think that 12 or 13 is going to be where we see him settle. Yeah. So on to the other players then who maybe caught the eye at the weekend, John. And uh, I mean, there were so many big stories there with Balakoon and Human Henderson. But before we talk about them, Jordy Murphy come back too. But Nick Timoney perhaps uh, outshone a lot of them, John? Yeah, Nick would have been the one I would have picked up uh, on. Um, again, another great performance from him all around the pitch. Great linking play. Uh, he, he made the initial break for that try for uh, Stuart McCluskey at half time. Uh, what Stuart McCluskey was doing in the middle of a rock, I don't know, but fair play to him. I, I, I couldn't believe it myself. I think uh, even Jim Neely got foxed. Uh, I was watching the, the game again the next day, and even Jim wasn't sure who scored the try. Uh, but that break that um, that Nick made, I thought he was going to make the line himself. It was a uh, it was an all hands all pumps to the station whenever. Uh, Cardiff back three came, tried to sort him out, took three of them to stop him. Uh, but eventually, I mean, the ball was uh, recycled and, and uh, Stuart eventually scored from it. But um, great, great all-round performance. And he was still goal, obviously going well in the second half and and then eventually did score again uh, himself. Mm-hmm. Johnny, those two players we've, we've highlighted then so far, the two Ireland internationals we've highlighted so far, Robert Balagoon and Nick Timoney, neither of them have played a minute of the Six Nations so far, and that's probably harder to believe in, in Balagoon's case. But with the way they've played in this game, what do you think? Are, have they any chance against England? I think they have a chance, but I don't, I don't think that 
anything that they were likely to do against Cardiff. And bearing in mind that we saw exactly the same against um, Connacht with both those boys playing well, is going to change too much of what Andy Farrell is thinking because he's already said during this championship that what has impressed him, or sorry, what impresses him more so than forming the ERC or even forming the Champions Cup is forming training. So it sounds like complete reverse logic, but it's not so much what you're doing in games, it's what you're doing in Carden House and what you're doing at the Abbott's time because the coaches genuinely believe, which doesn't say much for the league, uh, genuinely believe that's a more competitive environment than the games. Yeah, and we have a question maybe relating to that that we'll get on to in a little while. But John, can you not get yourself down to Ireland training? Because it makes it very difficult for us to predict which Ulster players are going to be involved in if we're not seeing this training. You know, get a wee backstage pass down there. To answer that question, unfortunately not. There, All the, uh, the training's been restricted. Uh, no access provision at all. Yeah. Uh, over the uh, the rest of the Six Nations, but you know you're you're absolutely right in what you're saying about how they perform in the uh, in that high intensity environment of an Irish training session and, and and how they work within that camp. I think it has a lot to play with everybody being so close to each other, you know, in, uh, on in performance levels and being so close to being the number ones uh, to get or to, to get a, a jersey for a test match. I think it goes down to those little small margins that they can show on the training pitch to the coaches that they, they're, they're ready to, to step up. I honestly don't think that he will make too many changes from you know for going into this game against England because I think that if any of our boys have a chance, I mean, let's say our boys, the Ulster boys, have a chance, that's a chance of making the bench because I think the back row is fairly well settled yeah. in Ulster at the minute. So from next point of view... I think that, you know, probably a bench place is what, you know, his performance and he goes down to training this week and does well, will probably gain him and he maybe be involved against England. Just, we just don't know. Um, again, I, I think that's what the, the level of the quality of players and everybody's fit and everybody's on the pitch working hard and playing well for the provinces, etc. It's very difficult to, to, to be able to pick and say that's definitely going to be the team. Yeah, like I agree a hundred percent, especially on the back row. Because I like I don't want to sound like I'm denigrating Nick Timoney in the way that he's played this season because he's been brilliant. He's been brilliant for a year. Oh well, sorry, more than a year now, and he's been Ulster's best back rower. And I got delighted for him because he gives a good interview, which is always my uh <laughs> yardstick of whether I want these guys to do well or not. Um <laughs> but it's very easy for us to watch the Ulster game on Friday and sit and say, oh, um, you know, player X played really well for Ulster, so does that mean that they're going to get in the Ireland team? But the problem is that the boys that got released for Leinster and the boys that got released for Munster, like, with the exception of Connacht, they obviously got hooked. The other three Irish provinces all absolutely thumped the teams that they were playing. So everybody playing for them played well as well, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. It's uh, it's certainly not easy, but sure, that's why Andy Farrell gets the big bucks, and uh, we're sitting here. But look, um, certainly bigger bucks than we get sitting here. Yeah, <laughs> well, recording podcasts on Zoom from my bedroom. Yeah, but, uh, don't forget that the, the real winner in this is Ireland. Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. exactly. Like, so much great competition out there. The real winner is the, the Ireland rugby team, and uh, let's hope they can go ahead and, and win at the weekend. And win the World Cup. That's what we're, we're for fingers crossed for. I'm calling it now, John. 
Um, I think only 10 to 1 for the World Cup. I checked it today. Only 10 to 1. What about Ian Henderson? We've talked about those other guys. Ian, probably the most likely one then to get to get a, a start, would you say, against uh, against England? He came back and, as he usually does from injury, looked uh, like he'd never been away. Yeah, I, I think he's got a good chance of starting. They'll need, they'll need a bit of grunt in there in that uh, pack, uh, some physicality, and we all know that that's what ha- a handy has in spades. So... I would be, I would certainly be picking them, even taking my rose tinted glasses off. Um, <laughs> I would say Handy uh, would be a shoe in for me because they the need him to, certainly up front because England will take it to them. The, Any time uh, England have troubled Ireland in recent years, it's been their physicality, and when Ireland have backed off and, and weren't able to handle that, then they just went to pieces uh, and it became embarrassing. So. I would say that they've learned the lesson there and they will not be making the same mistake. That's my, yeah. my, my read in that one. I think Handy did enough. He played 80 minutes and he was still going strong and still carrying the ball late into the game and making yeah. the hard yards that he does. So I don't see any reason why he didn't prove himself. He made the turnover for the non-try of the season as well in the <laughs> in the 80th minute. Yeah. And... Um, he was very coy in his post-match interview with uh, with Gavin Andrews and the BBC about uh, about whether he was going to play for Ireland or I think he said he'd be happy to play for Ireland or Ulster, which uh, <laughs> I, I don't think there's much chance of him being released back to play for Ulster. I have to be honest. No, no. Although it it probably brings up that, that because on this weekend more than any other, maybe the players might think, oh well, if I'm released back to Ulster, do you know what a game I'm going to play in, I'll still be okay. Like. Um, yeah, well, yes, possibly, but the difficulty from that perspective is that obviously with the games being on the same day in two different countries back to back, like it's not even just about making the 23, it's about traveling reserves as well, because mm. don't forget we're only, whatever it is, four months detached from uh, Ireland having to have Nick Timoney speed down the motorway to get there in mm. time to play against Argentina. So, and we saw this for the France game as well, where it looked like a much wider traveling squad like Ireland are not going to leave themselves short by any means so you're not just looking at oh are they going to be in the 23 and if they're not they're playing for Ulster it's are they going to be in the could be talking 27 or 28 so that's the position the players don't want to find themselves in then they have to make that decision am I really pushing (laughs) for the 23 or am I just going to throw a few crap passes in training and make sure I get back to Ulster yeah, if you don't if you don't make the twenty three, you want to be so far out of it that you <laughs> that you get released back to play in the in the uh, the table topping interpro. Yes, so if any of you are listening, boys, just uh, you just can throw a few bad ones in there. And make sure you just get back. What about uh, James Hume, John? Because Johnny mentions the the try that never was, the try that was was a good one too. What an intercept! Uh, and once again, like, I mean, we, we feel like we're talking and singing his praises every week on the podcast at the minute, but uh, that's just the form he's in. Fantastic again. He's really come on now. He's put his hand up, over, particularly over the last 18 months. And I think he's doing everything right. He can't do any more. His defensive raids are great. His attacking lines, his aggression on the ball, everything he's doing, he's doing perfectly. So, Great, great to see. And do you know what? I love his passion when he scores a try because he, you always get some sort of reaction out of him. He just, you know, he just he loves it and he loves playing to the crowd. And that's 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 great to see. Uh, it gets everybody gets gets everybody behind him. 
yeah. and shows just how much it means to him to play for Ulster and, and to score tries. And that's what we'll want to see more of. But you all... that, I, that I judge players off their interviews, like John judges <laughs> them off their celebrations so you can get good pictures of them. And, <laughs> and, uh, and he dived in. He dived in for lovely <laughs> So I'm delighted. Um, <laughs> uh, he doesn't just set the ball down. That was the one thing I'd say to Aaron Sexton. Aaron, please, you know, you run in, there's no one there, just give it to us. Give us a nice straight dive. That'd be lovely. But uh, yeah, like, all, all the pictures of his try ended up being of, uh, of Steve McCluskey lifting him in the air. Yeah, well, that was good. Did you like that? Well, that was just, I actually texted you and thanked and thank you very much for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> picture of the night. <laughs> um, but listen, there's a lot of talk about the try that wasn't a try, and, and I honestly feel need to mention this. Holly Davis, yeah. what a what a referee! Yes, like, yeah. You know, you know, for me, I, I'm a bit a bit biased. I think that we have two two great referees, two two great young referees, and one of them I, I think is uh, Young Bosby, um, one of our own referees. I think he's he's a super referee. But Holly Davidson, to me, wasn't on the pitch. Hardly. You know, the game flowed flow beautifully and she, she kept things going. Um, she, she had the total respect of the players, which was fantastic to see. And she was calm and collect. And you know what? It was a forward pass, boys. Let's be honest. <laughs> the, the ball was passed. Uh, whenever Ben let the ball go, he was behind the goal line uh, or behind the halfway line. And If the line hadn't been on the pitch or it hadn't been passed on the halfway line where you could judge it, I think it would have been allowed. It was a flattish pass, mm-hmm. which you know, that line wasn't there where you could see <laughs> when it left his hand, he was behind, and then all of a sudden he caught it on the front of the line. It had to be forward. Couldn't have been anything else. And to be fair to Holly, she hung on and she made the decision. Leo Collin, who was the TMO, actually said, no, it's a try. And she looked at it again, and she looked at it again, and she said, no, it's a forward pass, and didn't give it. Yeah. And although it didn't matter to the scoreboard, it was the right probably decision and probably a lot of people will give me a hassle for saying it but like I'm being honest that was my view of it at the time and I think she made the call and I, and I have to say fair play to her I thought she handled the game brilliantly mm-hmm. and it's fantastic to see a woman refereeing women refereeing rugby mm-hmm. and uh, doing so well not just being there for the sake of it but actually on merit and she really is a quality referee brilliant yeah. absolutely to see a good refereeing performance from Scotland as well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Jonathan you mentioned earlier about the Ireland training perhaps being more uh, competitive than some of these uh, Ulster games uh, Stuart Martin asks with so many one-sided games at the weekend is it time to change the URC enjoyed Ulster style of play on Friday but the game wasn't a contest uh, obviously by the scoreline and he says perhaps two leagues of eight with promotion relegation a cup competition that involves all the teams might uh, get some more competitive games so just in case anybody not is not au fait with the rest of the scorelines from the weekend Edinburgh beat Connacht 56-8 there's the Ulster game Leinster put 61 uh, on Benetton in Benetton uh, Munster 64 Dragons 3 uh, and Scarlet's beat Glasgow 35-10 and then there was the Ospreys Zebra game which was a close one but do you think there's there's merit uh, in this Jonathan that the competition needs looked at? It's certainly an argument for winter rugby because as soon as we had a dry weekend everywhere people just started running absolute riot (laughs) Um, (laughs) so those uh, the 12-0 in the storm that we had uh, last or two weekends ago was a a distant memory um, I actually had this conversation over the weekend with somebody else 
for this very reason. And I do like the cup competition idea because part of the issue that you would have with promotion relegation and two conferences of eight is teams would not go for it basically on principle because they'd be playing too few games in their minds. So therefore we'd be losing money. Like you would have seven home games if you played a round robin essentially with eight other teams. So the cup competition, I guess, is a good good way around it. The only note of caution I would say about making too many judgment calls on the basis of the weekend is that obviously we've had more games during the Six Nations than were planned. Now, this weekend was scheduled games, but throughout the championship were meant to be moving away from games being played during these windows. So, as an example, Benetton are a completely different side outside of international windows because they provide so many players to... uh, to the Italian team. Theoretically, the same should go for Leinster, but um, their B team and C team still uh, has the ability to put up 50 points on people. Um, And the other, I suppose, wait and see element of this is the South African teams because we're all assuming that they're going to improve the more they get used to uh, the move into the Northern Hemisphere. If you were to break the league into eight now, obviously with everyone having played largely different numbers of games and things like that and it's still being mid-season you know there'd only be one of those South African teams in the top eight but I obviously agree completely like it wasn't a good weekend for the uh, ERC because Mm. if you're neutral and watching those games like you're not watching any of them beyond the the R mark really because they're all over like you're switching over and watching something else none of them as the question referenced like Ulster fans will enjoy watching Ulster play like that and put up that many points but it's not going to appeal to a wider audience unless the game is more engrossing and closer, basically. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, John? You like the competition the way it is? Or, uh, I mean, quite apart from anything else, it annoys me that the teams still don't have even fixture lists. So it's a bit of a farce. But anyway, that's just my bugbear. No, I, I actually am um, a great believer in meritocracy. And I think that it would, the only way to get around it, Johnny, is to have two divisions. My, in my view, two divisions of eight and playing home and away and then bring the cup competition in for your extra fixtures. I agree with you with the cup competition, but I think if you've two leagues of eight and you're playing um, promotion relegation from the bottom of division one, division two, if you're going to call it that, but having a team or a league of, of uh, 16 teams that are basically, there is a divide in it mm. and matches are not close. It don't, it, they're not selling a great product out there to TV land. Um, and I think that could be an issue going forward. But if the two leagues of eight playing promotion relegation and obviously there'd be a championship uh, League A winner or League B winner, there'll be a playoff at the top of that. So there's you're adding more competition in, although it's diluted right and left. Um, but at the top, you've, you've got, and at the bottom of the leagues, you've got promotion relegation. Yeah, well, an interesting point, and maybe uh, you can let us know what you think about that one on the Twitter account. But uh, we shall move on then to a big weekend coming up. Obviously, we have already been discussing uh, in part which of the Ulster players are going to get the nod for England against Ireland. That's at uh, quarter to five on Saturday afternoon at Twickenham. So, Johnny, if we reckon Ian Henderson's most likely to get the nod, if you were Andy Farrell now, how many would there's, we should just point out in case people forget, Rob Herring, Mike Lowry and Kieran Treadwell had all stayed with Ireland 
uh, last week. And then Henderson, Balakinjum and Timoney have all already uh, gone back down to join up with the squad again. So if Henderson starts, how many of those other ones do you think at this point in time will be involved? I'm just saying he's up to be wrong at this stage, but here we are. Go on ahead. Yeah, I can't remember what happened last week or, or two weeks ago, but it, we definitely didn't nail the uh, the team selection for that. Herring, for sure, yeah. So that's two. And I think there's every chance that, in the spirit of what I said at the start of this tournament, of everybody getting two runs, now it looks an awful lot more like that's going to be two runs off the bench in the case of James Shum. But... I can see Mike Laurie wearing that 23 jersey, possibly. I mean, it is a very different proposition, obviously, playing England in Twickenham than Italy at home. But the fact of the matter remains, if you don't think that these players are capable of playing in international fixtures like that, then there's no point giving them time against Italy, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah, there's no point having players, basically, that you only play against lower tier one nations and tier two nations. Like, if you think somebody's good enough to play international rugby then you have to believe that they're going to be good enough to play England, to play France, mm. to play South Africa, to play New Zealand. Yeah, and as we've said before, they need to be tested in those sort of games before the World Cup rolls around. John, what do you reckon? Do you agree with, with those three, Henderson, Herring and, uh, and Larry maybe? Yes, I would I would actually have Hendy starting, definitely. Mm. And then I, I would actually say, look, there's no no reason, reason to say that James Shum hasn't done enough uh, he he's one for me that has the potential to definitely make the bench. Timothy certainly has done enough to make the bench. Mike Laurie's performance against Italy would would say to me, and again, just hearing the feedback coming, you know, from within the Irish camp that uh, you know he's he's doing so well in there in that environment that uh, mm-hmm. and I've been very impressed with Mike. Either way, he's uh, he's basically taken to you know getting the calls all the, uh, the the lines of running and all that he's just all over it and I think that that's going to hold him in good stead and obviously Rob Herring has got the experience as a hooker so there could actually be maybe I would have four Ulster players on, on who have the chance to make the bench um, the one player I haven't mentioned is Robert Balakun because you know while I'd love to see Robert Balakun there, I can't have five players on the bench. <laughs> you know, um, it's great that be able to be able to say we we have five, maybe six Ulster players now that are knocking on the door. But who will make the bench? Well, I'm probably you've got to look at Hume, Timoney, and probably Herring are, are are the three that you definitely would nail down, and possibly Mike Yari in there, and probably Robert would be losing out. So. Everybody or nobody or something in between. In conclusion, I don't think I don't. To be honest, <laughs> Mac Hansen probably has done enough to start. Yeah, uh, and you can't say that any of the other players in the Conway. You can't say hasn't played. He's played okay. Like he's he's done nothing wrong. You can't drop him. And and um, Hugo Keenan has done very well. So there's your back three. You can't you can't actually say no. no. Those three. Um, there's a weakness there. So you have to then just have to be, you're in a waiting list basically to one of them makes a big mistake. Mm-hmm. And, and like, with Andy I'm Farrell. not going against what I said at the start of the championship. Like I would have liked to see more of these guys, not just because they're from Ulster. Like we put Gavin Coombs and Craig Casey in the same group, but um, it'll be interesting to see if France win on Friday night, how that impacts Ireland's selection 
win or lose against England for Scotland because like you can't see the logic for Farrell that there is a Six Nations Championship still there for this yeah. Ireland team if France slip up. Whereas if France were to win and perhaps even win big against Wales, then it would be a different proposition for Ireland against Scotland. Mm. Although admittedly, the only way that Ireland come out of this weekend with their championships hopes over is if they lose and France win. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? What do you, what do you think of the, the centre combination for Ireland? Who do you think that will be? My, my, the reason why I'm asking is because Bundy Aki brings a lot of sort of aggression, but lack of discipline. And in a game where tackling has, and the referees are so hot on tackling, do you think that Farrell will have a bit of worry about putting him in in the centre? I still think it, like, I don't know how many years, how many years has it been since uh, Guy Ringo has emerged? 2017, so five years. And, like, we still don't really know what the best partnership is between the three of those guys. And you can now put, you know, James Schumann into that mix. Yeah, Chris Barrell's played a bit. Stuart McCluskey's played a bit, but obviously, yeah, like obviously in this fixture last year, you know, Bondiagi got sent off, even though Ireland won, and he <laughs> has got two red cards in his Test career, which is the ultimate, uh, the ultimate rarity in Irish rugby. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we see um, if we see Henshaw twelve and um, Ringrose at thirteen for this one, but I think you make an interesting point in the sense that you do then lose. Not that Robbie Henshaw isn't physical, but you do then lose Aki's physicality because if you go Aki and Henshaw, then it's certainly a beefier midfield against what we all expect to be, regardless of who plays for them and regardless of the attacking rhythm that they have, or to my mind, have not found in this championship. They're still going to be a physical test because they're still going to be. A bigger side than Ireland are. Yeah, but that's what that brings me in on to James Hume. He his discipline's excellent. So he is a player who can play within himself without being that the sort of nasty aggression that you know he doesn't have to feel he goes up and has to whack everybody all the time. He's a safer bet, maybe to have on the bench. That, that's a sort of I was just interested to see what your thoughts were about uh, that that whole centre partnership. I do. Th- I think that just the idea of having a centre on the bench has been um, an interesting element of this Six Nations because it's not something that we've seen before, really, because Joe Schmidt was so enamoured with the idea of his number 23 being versatile. You know, you would have seen an awful lot of times you would have saw guys like Fergus McFadden. He could play across multiple positions in that 23 jersey. I always thought if not for the injuries, then we would have had Will Addison in that role, probably certainly by the World Cup. But just with his selection of Hume twice on the bench in that 23 years, I think we saw Farrell show a real willingness to change things up in his bench backline options. But I, th- I think it's, interest- it's interesting to me how this is going to play out in the next couple of years or even in the next year and a half, say, until the World Cup, because we've talked about this idea of training and having to perform in training because, and to a certain degree, Stuart McCluskey has suffered from this as well. Like, how well do you have to play at provincial level to make a case for selection that can't be avoided? Because Ireland are blessed with great centres at the minute, but you're also looking at human being like, well, what more could that guy have done to earn a start? And he's been unfortunate 
in the sense that when he's come on in both games, the game's already been gone. It's been diff- It's difficult to make an impact in that sort of. I think, especially as a back in that sort of um, in that sort of game. But yeah, like I, I, I think Ireland would benefit from him having a start in the remainder of this championship. I think he would benefit from him having a start in the remainder of this championship. But. I don't know. I just, I just have an inkling. I don't think it'll be this weekend because I think this weekend is going to be very much tried and tested. Well, Ireland do go into that one. Uh, Twickenham is very, very, very slight favourites, the bookies. So uh, fingers crossed they've got that one right and that Ireland do come out and uh, beat the English at Twickenham. Always a great occasion. Uh, also a great occasion is when Ulster beat Leinster, which uh, happened obviously earlier in the season. They got that 2010 win down in, in Leinster, looking to complete the double this Saturday evening at 7.35 at Ravenhill. So we have talked about all of the Ulster players here in the Ireland squad. There's 14 Leinster players currently training down with, with Ireland this weekend. So they're, of course, at the mercy of uh, Andy Farrell as well as to just how big a squad they have available for what is a huge game in the URC because Ulster went to it just three points behind Leinster in the table. So they don't want to lose that one. All of a sudden, they're quite far behind. Andrew Trimble had written in his Sunday Life column that uh, if Ulster were to be able to do the double over Leinster, it would really make not only Leinster, but the rest of the league sit up and really take notice of Ulster on their uh, their trophy uh, prospects, I suppose. Although the weekly donut takes a, a different view. His question this week is that uh, only in defeat do we really question the challenge that some URC teams offer up, he says. Another 40-plus point win might feel very hollow if Ulster don't back it up this weekend. And even then, a win against a weakened Leinster is, would be another win with an asterisk, he says. So in that regard, John, is it a bit of a, a lose-lose situation for Ulster in a way this weekend? Uh, not in the slightest. Um, totally disagree. I think that uh, any having watched Leinster and Leinster A in particular, they're a hell of a team and a hell of a squad. So no, no matter what happens with the Irish selection this weekend, and there'll be a raft of Leinster players we know will be on that Ireland team or in the starting 23 or travelling to London. What will come up from Dublin to Ravenhill will be a quality, quality Leinster side mm. who will be quite capable of beating Anybody in the pro, uh, well, I was going to say the pro six, the pro fourteen. I mean the uh, URC. So I don't think that'll be the case. I think of you know, I would be happy with a single point win at the weekend. Uh, I'm not looking for bonus points or anything this weekend because people think that Ulster are going to come up uh, and it'll be a strong Ulster side going out against the weekend Leinster side. That that will not be the case. And let me tell you, I know for a fact that Leinster are coming up here thinking that they can win. There's nothing they want more than to come up to Belfast. <laughs> they want to come up to Belfast to right the wrong of the RDS, and, and, and they, they can do it, and they've a team to do it. And uh, Ulster will have to be at their very best to beat them. I love John Cooney's quote that uh, I know what they're like. They'll have a picture of James Hume celebrating the RDS <laughs> up in the changing room this weekend, which is a, a good way to put it. Johnny, you, do, you can sort of see Donald's point though as well in that if Ulster do the double over Leinster, there can be a lot of crow and oh, we'll beat Leinster twice, but at the same time, they haven't beat a Leinster team that they would take on if it comes to a final, and that's when it really matters. So you can see where he's coming from, can you? I can, but it's a different type of yardstick, I think. So to me, they're both yardsticks. I wouldn't disregard the yardstick of beating Leinster twice, especially given that beating Leinster twice would essentially, you think, put Ulster in the box seat 
to finish top of the league, which is a massive, massive thing, both mentally and in terms of playoff positions. Because bear in mind that if Ulster had have finished above Leinster in the standings last year, they would have been playing and on form anyway, been favourites for a final. I do think that to look at, as an example, the 2019 quarterfinal, the 2013 final, whenever you're playing, the 2012 European final, obviously, as well, everybody knows that it is a different thing to play Leinster at full strength in a winner-takes-all or winner-advances game. But the idea of beating them twice and finishing above them in the standings when you haven't been able to do that for a very long time and when there is a tangible reward at the end of this, because we need to be honest looking at the table here. Like if Leinster beat Ulster on Saturday, it's highly unlikely, even with Leinster playing so many other games away, even having to play Munster twice, that Ulster are going to make up eight points on them over the last five games. So, John, a lot on the line then, even if it isn't uh, a cup final against uh, between two full-strength teams, but nonetheless, very important. And uh, how do you see it going? Ulster are going to fancy their chances at home, aren't they? I would think so. And with this being a rearranged fixture from, uh, I think it was New Year's Day, it was a full house on New Year's Day. So hopefully, uh, with England match being uh, televised on the big screens beforehand uh, at Ravenhill, I think that uh, the, sh- the crowd should be in fairly good spirits for the arrival of Leinster later on that evening. And with a big crowd there, home advantage, a strong Ulster side going well, I would say I'd be happy uh, that we get a single po- uh, like a one-point win would do me. Um, if we get a bonus point, I'd be ecstatic. Yes, fingers crossed. There will be a lot of uh, happy faces coming out of uh, Ravenhill on Saturday evening after having watched two big wins. Ireland under 20s actually are playing England as well on Saturday. At That one's at quarter past seven, so a bit of a clash there, but uh, maybe you can get that one, live stream that one up on your phone or something. Um, so speaking of the, the other Six Nations competitions, Jonathan, the Ireland women's squad was announced last week with uh, six Ulster girls in it, Amanda McQuaid, Claire Bowles, Neve Jones, uh, Anna McGann, Brittany Hogan and Catherine Dean. So uh, good to see plenty of representation in there, especially when they're going to, to get a, a rare game at Ravenhill come the end of the championship. Yeah, and obviously it was a, a fascinating week really in in Irish women's Rugby with um, press conferences around the uh, the report into the failure to qualify for the World Cup, the uh, independent thirty independent recommendations being made about what needs to happen with the game moving forward. Even just the more sort of the change in tone from the RFU about uh, about the women's game, and uh, I suppose where the blame was to be laid for the failure to qualify for the World Cup with the union taking on more of the responsibility than certainly they had at the time with um, the comments that the players were to blame and the response from Cluny Maloney that um, slurry spreading, I believe, was uh, the exact term of uh, how she described it. So it's going to be a very interesting Six Nations for Ireland, not so much on the field as off it, because it's going to be two things to my mind, one of which is how the mood music around the team changes from the last time we saw them, obviously with the failure to qualify for the World Cup and um, that heartbreaking game for the players. 
and all the anger and recriminations that seemed to bubble up to the surface after that. Everybody now certainly appears to be pulling in the same direction. The players going off social media did seem supportive of the message that was coming out from the RFU, even down to the players' representatives' statement coming out in tandem with the RFU statement on it. So that's one thing that I think people are going to have their eye on. And the other thing, and this is something that I'm writing, I call it, or was writing a column about before we stopped um, to do this, the idea of how the public gets behind this team now, because we all saw in the latter months of last year, the public support on social media for the um, circumstances that the women's rugby players were in, the unfair conditions that they were put in, and everything around that. But it's a much more tangible show of support, to my mind, to go and watch them play than it is to tweet about how unfair the treatment is, you know? So while I'm not criticising at all anybody using social media to show the support or anything like that, but um, there's now this tangible opportunity coming up for people all over the island all over the island of Ireland to go and show their support for the team. And as you mentioned, Gareth, in terms of in Ulster, they will be playing obviously at Ravenhill against Scotland in that last weekend in uh, April. Inconveniently timed, I will admit, given that it is the same time as Ulster senior men seem are playing an important game against Edinburgh. But um live streams, that's what we're saying. Get it up on the phone while you're standing in the terraces. That's it. Really, uh, really test the Ravenhill, um, <laughs> the Ravenhill Wi-Fi with everybody in the crowd streaming the Premier <laughs> Sports Player. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, set up to be uh, an interesting Six Nations for the Ireland women. They begin that on the twenty sixth of March, so a couple of weeks away. Yet at home to Wales. So oh, before I forget, Johnny, we were at the Schools Cup semi-finals last. Well, I was at the second one. You were at both. Well done to Methody and Campbell for getting into what's set to be a really, really interesting final next week. Now, Johnny, before you give us the lowdown on a couple of the uh, any players that that really have caught your eye in those games and potential future stars for Ulster, we did have a listener who came up to us when we were at the game. We'll come up to you. He didn't know who he was, and I was too scared to say anything. But said that he really enjoyed the podcast uh, and he listens every week. And it was so nice, and I was really taken aback. But you were very blasé about it. I want to apologise on your behalf for for not really seeming like you appreciated it because I really appreciated it. But I was too scared to tell him who it was. But, and you were just like, oh yeah, thanks, cheers. And then he walked off. Um, but thank you very first much. All, thank you very First of all, you appear to be in a bad light here because <laughs> as we have discussed numerous times on this podcast, the way I talk and the way my face looks should not be conveyed as a lack of enthusiasm for anything. <laughs> I look the way I look and I sign the way I sign. Gareth, I can't help that if you don't think that it conveys a level of enthusiasm that would be more in line with you, he just bounces about like a puppy all day, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. So thank you to whoever whoever that was. You didn't even ask them their name. That's what I'm saying, Donna. You just could have you could have been more friendly. Just constructive feedback, you know. Now I always enjoy hearing from people saying that they listen to the podcast. I think that I actually heard this three times last week. 
from various people saying they listen to the podcast. Just, you're you're blasé about it now, just. But, and I will say this, again, a difference between you and me, Garth. Some of us, when we're at a game, are actually working, so I don't have time <laughs> <laughs> to have these lengthy conversations that you think people want, that they may not even want. <laughs> like, these people <laughs> are trying to watch the match as well, you know? So, very nice, but I'm not going to assume that somebody wants to have a lengthy chat with me during a game. <laughs> Well, if anybody has any positive feedback to the podcast, come to me if you want a lengthy chat. Come to Johnny if you just want the cheers. But while I did really enjoy both games in their own way, very different games, but I really enjoyed both of them, obviously. First Schools Cup games for me in two years, but the definite highlight was somebody not knowing who you were. I mean, <laughs> that, that made my whole day. <laughs> Oh, I, look, I know my place. Uh, any any players uh, seriously catch catch your eye in particular? Yeah, there were quite a few actually. I suppose with Wallace, obviously, we do have to start with Duke, a very different Duke, not being a scrum half or being a prop, but um, really, really good, uh, really good carrying. Um, first and foremost, that was in a Wallace pack that probably wasn't wasn't getting the upper hand, obviously, because. Um, I was really impressed with the Campbell pack. We both thought that uh, Zach Solomon, the uh, the Campbell captain, was very, very impressive. A hooker, he's been involved with the uh, Ireland skills and the Ulster skills. Joe Hopes, who was the uh, the six foot seven lock, so the kind of uh, the kind of specimen that we don't too often see in uh, Ulster senior level, let alone Ulster schools level. Like I don't think I've seen somebody that. Physically imposing, really, since... Um, remember Matt Dalton playing for BRA a few years back, but you'd be going back that far. The number eight, yeah, we, we both like the look of him as well, Flynn, uh, Flynn Longstaff. Yeah, in the middle of the game, Ben McFarlane put in what has to be the most impressive goal-kicking display in schools cover rugby that I've ever seen. Like, hmm. I cannot stress enough how difficult these conversions were because they were from the touchline. And the like the very first one he kicked, I turned to Adam and said, "Yeah, you don't see too many uh, kicks from there being made in schoolboy rugby on this pitch because obviously it's a massive pitch." But then he just kept doing it the whole way through the game. <laughs> like I've genuinely, I've never seen anything like it at that level. Both centers for Methody are really good. Obviously, Ulster just cannot produce enough centers. What about and, that for the Dixon on the wing? Was very good. Yeah, yeah, he. Uh, Really, really good footwork from him, yeah. <laughs> this a relation, John? No relation, but he was a good player. Ben McFarland was the one that caught my eye, definitely. It's great to see Skills Cup Rugby uh, back now. Uh, it's been so enjoyable to watch. I actually covered the uh, the school's trophy final at Banbridge Academy on Saturday morning. Um, and a big shout out to uh, Lurgan College and Portadown College. Uh, it was a, a local derby and it was end-to-end rugby from start to finish. Very, very enjoyable and well-played, lads. Yeah, yeah. Who won? Lurgan College won it. Oh, good to see. Always good to see a Lurgan victory over the outports. Anyway, just before we go, one last question, John, that had been asked a week or two ago, although we thought just thought we'd save it for uh, Ulster's next home game, which obviously is coming up this weekend. Uh, it's from Stephen McCormick, who asked, why is Ravenhill much Quieter these days, even if it's a large, uh, larger crowd than it used to be. Heineken Cup Friday night games used to be electric, but the Northampton game, he says, was relatively quiet. It's not due to the standard of rugby, and it's the only reason that he says he misses the old ground. What do you think? Is there merit in this that, that's uh, not as loud as it once was in there? 
Uh, yes, there is. Uh, I, I've noticed it's been a bit quieter than normal. Maybe it's uh, the, the wearing of masks and singing and COVID and all that sort of stuff maybe has uh, dampened the atmosphere a wee bit. But yes, it has been a wee bit quieter. What, one of the things that I've noticed is, uh, uh, like it or low, that the the, ba the brass band not chirping up every uh, every 10 minutes or so is, it was, is probably something that got the crowd going when it got a bit quiet, you know, so... Maybe we need a bit of music or something to to, to get the, the singing going. Um, I'm going to start a campaign to get whoever they, was playing the bagpipes in the Campbell College support, Ulster Rugby, just to employ them, get them to come to all the home matches because the bagpipes are fantastic. And that they, would probably they, they, they divide them. They and everything. They call themselves the Black Brigade. It's like uh, <laughs> they're, they're like the Oakland Raiders with the, with the Black Hole. <laughs> A shout out to the, the South Wales Supporters Club who uh, travelled to a lot of the away games. Johnny, you'll, you'll know who I'm talking about. Um, they're, a, they're a band of uh, supporters in the, who all live down in the uh, in South Wales and they, they travel to all the, obviously all the Welsh games and all the Heineken games in, in the UK and they certainly make themselves heard. They've got a raft of songs that they sing and they, uh, they're cer certainly a focal point in away matches and a lot of people, I'm sure, will have heard them uh, on the TV uh, if they're watching the match. And, and when a, they are going yeah. to the Dragons, for example, on that wet, wet Sunday, all you could hear was stand up for the Ulsterman and sung <laughs> in the entire game. Uh, it was incredible. But uh, they, they are very vocal. Uh, maybe they should be flying them into Belfast to get the, <laughs> the Belfast crowd going. But uh, they're a great, a great bunch of boys and girls. Uh, like that's... I definitely agree that um, I don't think the atmosphere is as loud or as. Uh, vociferous as it once was that's going back quite a while to when Ravenhill really had like this reputation as like um a bear pit I suppose but like so like I agree I agree with Stephen's question completely but I also do think it is worth noting that the atmosphere at Ravenhill is still considered better than the atmosphere anywhere else in the league really <laughs> so it's one of those you probably can't quantify it too much because it's various different there's various different ways and reasons uh, that people have for going to a game and supporting a team. Yeah. Personally, I would think that as things become more fashionable to do, Instagrammable to do, whatever you want to call it, you're probably attracting a different type of fan. Not saying worse or better, just a different type of fan that is maybe less likely to be of the uh, vocal element, mm -hmm. shall we say. That might be, um, could be generalizing. But like it's it is amazing to me that we have this idea in our heads that the the atmosphere is getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. But like at the same time, the opposing players that are coming over still unprompted to a man usually mention how good a place it is to play rugby because of the crowd, because of the size of the crowds, because of the stadium, because of everything around the game, sort of thing. So not as good as uh, not as loud, sorry, as it once was, but um, still probably the envy of an awful lot of other teams in the league. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fair point. So that's pretty much all we have time for this week. So thank you uh, all once again for joining us. And I should just note that I am actually moving into a different job within the company next week. So uh, I'm not too sure what that means for my involvement on the podcast going forward. It 
probably will be uh, less often. Um, so just want to thank all the listeners and all you guys for uh, it's been it's been great fun over the last lot of years. And I've enjoyed sort of coordinating it as it uh, has been with all the time uh, we have to squeeze it in. But uh, yeah, it's been great fun. And uh, I'm sure I won't be a total stranger in the future. But uh, yes, so that's all we have time for this week. Thank you, John Dixon and Jonathan Bradley. And for me, Gareth Hanna, thank you very, very much for listening. Tearing up. I'm tearing up. <laughs> Get the balance out. <laughs> <laughs>